Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. On this month's show, Jacob meets up with multidisciplinary artist Andrew Noseworthy while on a road trip in Montreal. Andrew's work is wide-ranging, covering everything from hard and experimental rock through to modern classical and avant-garde music. Much of his work draws on his experience in the Labrador and Newfoundland regions of Canada, while continuing to build and maintain artistic collaborative relationships. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us on the um, Classical Queer Podcast. Today we're joined by Andrew Noseworthy, who is a composer and a performer. Um, and you're a guitarist by like instrument, correct? Yeah, yeah. And even more specifically, mostly electric guitar. Specifically electric guitar. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about some music. We're going to talk about uh, how you write and where you uh, situate yourself and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to glad to be here. So we uh, generally like to start with a bit of a, a, a bio, um, and we always uh, often say um, it can be as academia-based as you like, or or you can completely uh, disavow yourself of that world, as, as many of us like to do. Um, but but tell us about where you uh, began your your practice and uh, how you've kind of ended up where you are. Yeah, sure. I I, I liked how you prefaced it with it can be as academia based as, as not, because I feel like, especially as I get towards hopefully finishing a PhD this summer. And in fact, I should be on track to finish this summer or at the very least this year, depending. I, I'm just, I'm also struggling with that kind of thing. Whenever I write a bio or give some sort of thing, it's like, how much of that do I include in there? Because in a lot of ways we are products of it, but like almost in spite of it sometimes. And it's when I talk about like, my background or my interest in music, like, yeah, they have, have like academic leanings or they have like certain parts that are definitely tied to that. But I mean, I think purely it's not, it's not really institutional academic leaning because I'm originally from uh, Labrador City uh, or Labrador West in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, I mean, like mostly self-taught until I decided that I, I wanted to go to quote unquote music school. Um, mostly because I was playing in a lot of, I was playing electric guitar and I was playing in a lot of kind of weirder kind of bands, um, a lot of like progressive rock and a lot of like hardcore and a lot of metal and things like that. And then like a lot of, like a lot of metal kids who play electric guitar, they, they hear Bartok or they hear Stravinsky and all of a sudden they're like, well, classical music can be heavy too. And it's like, <laughs> You know, it's or or classical music can be weird too. Like it can change time signatures or something like that. You know, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. like so that was a big thing. And I mean, I when I was in later high school, I was really getting into like writing more, even more so than playing. Um, even though playing has up until now still been just as equal part of my life, I was really getting into it. So that was what I decided I wanted to study was was composition. So. I ended up, uh, again, mostly being self-taught until I took about a year of classical guitar studies before I went to Memorial University for my undergrad. Um, and then while there, I was doing 
just as much kind of performing as well as writing again, working with a lot of people, doing a lot of multidisciplinary kind of projects, like working with people who work in like visuals and uh, improvisation groups a lot and, and playing in bands and things like that. Um, and then I did my master's in New York, which is where I really kind of connected with a broader and larger community, like in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, and I mean, that New York community that I connected with during my master's between 2015, 2017 is still really kind of like the basis of a lot of my collaborations and a lot of the people that I talk to on a daily basis and that I work with on a daily basis. And a lot of things are outgrowths of that. Um, and then I really see, I, I said that begrudgingly academic, but I'm using the, <laughs> I'm using the degrees as the timeline. Um, uh, but yeah, and then, then I ended up going to Western for my PhD after the master's. And the biggest reason why I chose Western besides like some of their uh, guaranteed teaching opportunities and some of their like good funding sources was that when I left St. John's to go to New York, a lot of people in St. John's Newfoundland or in the East Coast actually in general that I was connected with all ended up in the Toronto kind of area. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit in Montreal, but mostly Toronto. So when I was getting near the end of my New York time, I was making a lot of Toronto connections as well. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I ended up being. I ended up playing a lot of electric guitar chamber music and a lot of electric guitar solo music. Um, over the last couple of years, I've especially been getting into the audio engineering side of things. So I have a lot of mixing and mastering projects right now for different people's records. Um, I co-run a label with one of my best friends, Aaron Santian, called People Places Records that we started right around the time at uh, the end of our uh, time in New York, which is focused on, on a lot of music or a lot of like identities and people who really slip through the cracks or really don't fit in in a lot of places and trying to connect those different communities. And I use the term like post-regional a lot uh, because we mm -hmm. end up doing a lot of stuff that's internationally based or people that are kind of in transit between a lot of places. Um, so I co-run that label, which is always very exciting. And um, I think of what else? I don't know, a lot of stuff like that. Maybe that's a good bio. <laughs> No, it is. I mean, that book that covers so much. Um, and you were just saying you're so you're Toronto based now. Um, and what brought you there? Is it just proximity to things? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't I like London as a city. I don't dislike London necessarily. I don't dislike it as much as a lot of the people that are from there or mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a lot of what other people say. But um, it's just there's there's just more kind of going on in Toronto for better or for worse. I mean, like when I was in London, I, I was trying to get a lot of local stuff on the go, but the, the city feels, have you been in London, Ontario before? I have. Yeah. Have you spent like a lot of time there or? No, uh, though I, I, I kicked around Western a little bit and then uh, I've been to a couple weddings. Uh, oh, that's about it. <laughs> nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's, I find the, the city interesting because it was the first time that I was in a city where a lot of parts of the city or a lot of parts of the town felt disconnected community wise. So like, mm. um, even though Memorial university has a separate campus than say like a downtown, everything feels kind of somewhat close together. And a lot of people that were involved in, in the music program or department, there were still playing in things downtown or mm -hmm. a lot of things there. And there was, and everything was close enough. You could walk to certain things in a fair amount of time, et cetera. Right. Um, and then, of course, in New York, NYU is like just right downtown. I mean, it barely even feels like a campus. It's basically in 
the village and everybody is playing in Brooklyn all the time and everybody's all over the place. But Western is interesting because I, I felt like even though I enjoyed like the school for a lot of reasons, like I felt like it's really disconnected from a lot of what's going on around the city. Like there's not really a lot of concerts for classical or contemporary music around the city. If anything, the biggest presence in London that I've noticed is like a visual arts scene. So both Westerns like fine arts programs and the Fanshawe fine arts programs have a big presence in the downtown and old East End kind of community. So actually, funny we're talking about this because this Saturday I'm going back to play a show at the Forest City Gallery, which is now actually moved locations to the East End. But when I was in London, that's what I would end up playing a lot of is, is or what I would end up doing is kind of these gallery spaces with mm. interdisciplinary kind of people because there's not really a lot of that going on at the school. The school feels very separate from the community. So, sorry, getting back to Toronto, whenever um, a gig would come up for either like something composition wise or something electric guitar wise or anything like that, it almost always be in Toronto. And being from Labrador and Newfoundland, like I'm very much used to long drives. So I don't mind making the, the commute from London to Toronto to come out for gigs. I know a lot of people here. And just by the end of the time, pandemic kind of messed the timeline up a little bit by the end of the time I was saying well I'm traveling back and forth every second week like I might as well make the Toronto move and if I have to move, go to London for something I'll do the Toronto not not unlike yourself with with Montreal or something so you know yeah yeah, yeah no it's it's funny you say the the um the vibe in London so the the only people that I really know um who spend a lot of time in London are actually visual people and poets and writers and mm -hmm. um and their take on the art scene is that they would collaborate with classical people or composers much more as well, but that there really wasn't a, a scene in the same way. But Western is so, uh, for those people who are not Canadian, who are uh, who are listening, Western is a, a really uh, kind of siloed campus. It really does uh, function on its own, like physically, but also just kind of ideologically within yeah. uh, the city. And it's it's funny when you, when you look at the different Canadian universities, at least, um, and and but like you say, like NYU is is very much integrated into the city, like um, McGill, Concordia, U to M, uh, U of T, um, even Dal, where I work, like they're all kind of very city uh, integrated. Um, but there are these these few campuses in in Canada that really are are really separate, like Western. And uh, I don't know if you've been out to the University of Manitoba. It's also like a very closed off space outside of Winnipeg. Like you really have to go to it. Okay. But it's funny what yeah. that like breeds, like just like collaboration wise or music wise. But um, so, how long have you been in Toronto? How many how many years have you been there now? Oh, I've I've only lived in or had an address, a fixed address of sorts in Toronto since February, actually. So oh, okay. A couple months, so it's it's fairly fairly new. It doesn't feel totally fairly new because I got in and instantly like had a bunch of projects that were already planned or start to sprout up or things to start to happen. Um, and before that, I was coming back and forth so often. But it it's uh, and I know like I don't know the city like super well, like somebody who lived here for a long time or somebody who grew up here. But I, I generally know like my way around or where like a lot of things are. So when I got here, it wasn't like I had to like meet people or find my way around or anything like that. So it feels like I've been here longer, but really only since February. So cool. Cool. Yeah. cool. So we have uh, we have a few things to listen to. 
Um, and maybe we will start with uh, kind of the order that you you send, sent them in. Um, so let's let's talk about Runaway with Meme. Yeah. <laughs> um, give us give us a little background. So this is a piece for solo piano and electronics. Um, give us a little background on the the where, when, why, what it is. Uh, all yeah. those good composer questions. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this a lot of my music is is uh, I have a lot of music that's that takes inspiration from like different kinds of popular sources or other kinds of sources of media or things like that. And um, this one is is kind of it, when I was thinking about what pieces to send in for this for this podcast, I was like, okay, I was like, what's maybe on what's on like I don't think I have too much stuff that's too on the nose for the for the subject or anything like that. But it's like I kind of feel like this piece this piece kind of fits in there. Like it's it's referencing a Carly Rae Jepsen song which of course is like kind of big in like the queer community uh, for a lot of reasons. And it's, it's referencing, but it's also referencing the, um, like the meme that grew out of that song. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where it's like where people are playing the, the saxophone lick and things mm -hmm. like that. So, I mean, like something that fascinated me about that, that kind of song and that, and that meme and stuff is that the meme kind of like reinvigorated the track or if I remember right, it kind of like brought, so like, I think that meme came out only like, or no, that meme came out like at least a year or like almost a year, kind of it blew up after that album had been out. Mm -hmm. So like, I remember when that song had came out, maybe even more, I can't remember now. I remember when that song and that album was out, like I was into it when it came out. And then it was like, all of a sudden I was like hearing that, that, well, it's not even really a saxophone. It's more like a synth line that people think is a saxophone. They have people playing like air sax to it, right? Uh, so that kind of came out and then it kind of like, had this new life and all of a sudden like all of a sudden Carly Rae Jepsen was like this cult this cult like figure out of nowhere it's like she went from like the call me maybe like top 40 pop whatever and now she's like a cult figure and I mean I always say this or reference this other meme or this other tweet that I thought was hilarious because I really lived it is like um I saw somebody sent me a tweet once where it was like Carly Rae Jepsen concerts consist of uh, 30 year old dudes who like death grips and swans and Kanye West and, and the other people that are at Carly Rae Jepsen concerts are uh, 14 year old girls who think they'll be with their boyfriend for the rest of their life or something <laughs> like that. And I thought that was like so funny because I went to go see her in London. It was literally that it was like, and it, it, it actually made me think I was like, it's like, I was like, I'm not really that much. I mean, I'm like, I'm like tattooed and I wear like hardcore shirts and like whatever, but like I'm not really that aggro, am I? Like I'm not the 30-year-old Death Grips fan at this concert, am I? Like, like I'm definitely a little bit like lighter or a little bit softer than that. I hope I don't know. So anyway, okay. So this is a bit of a digression, but um, the piece itself was was more so influenced by like not only just my like love for her and that track anyway, but like uh, how that kind of like that kind of single line little melodic idea kind of brought the song back into some sort of prominence. And then it kind of just like how internet culture like weirdly degrades over time. So like something that happens in the piece is just, it's only like the only thing the piano plays for the first like two thirds or three quarters of it is just one pitch across the octaves. But there's a, this is one of my only pieces that actually uses the max MSP patch, but it, there's a max MSP patch that does pitch shifting at different kind of delay rates mm -hmm. while they're playing that interact with it. And the pitch shifting is all just based on that 
melodic idea and like different kind of configurations of that melodic idea. And then later on in the piece, when everything kind of mellows out a little bit and the pianist is only just playing one whole note and holding it, then the kind of quote unquote, to use an academic term, the row kind of, uh, kind of actually gets kind of revealed there then all of a sudden it shifts and gets like bit crushed and the sample gets degraded. And that's supposed to be like, a, like just the way kind of like how quick internet culture kind of falls into like oblivion basically, <laughs> if that makes sense. But yeah, I don't know. The piece is, is fun because I think a lot of people really like playing it. Like I think the recording I sent is, uh, do you know Mado, Mado Christie? Piano? No, I don't. Okay, they're, they used to be Ontario based, but now they're based in, in St. John's and they did it uh, at this 2019 Sound Symposium based festival. Uh, it was like an on sound festival. And they're like, do you have any pieces to send in? And I was like, so yeah, maybe, maybe this one I sent it in and they were instantly like, yes, I get the reference. Yes, I want to play this. Like, yes, this I was like, okay, great. Like connection, like right away. But other people hear it, they're just like, I don't know what's going on. Why, why does this exist? Which I like, I like that reaction. I like that question. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, I mean, Carly Rae Jepsen's like a, an interesting person to to talk about. My uh, interaction with Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, so what I, when was Call Me Maybe? Like that would have been what, 2012? Yeah, so it, early 2020, uh, early 2010s for sure. I think either 11 or 12, because it was early undergrad for me and that was that time. That makes sense. So I was living in Ottawa at the time. So I was uh, kicking around Ottawa around 20, 2012, 2013. And whatever year it was, uh, Call Me Maybe had been the year before, and then they decided that they, being the, the federal uh, government, decided that she should headline Canada Day on the Hill uh, because she's obviously an incredibly famous uh, big name. And I remember sitting on Canada, on Canada Day watching this um, horrifying performance with about 17 people watching Carly Rae Jepsen uh, on the hill and it was just yeah. the saddest thing I have ever because she was doing coffee maybe with like every fiber of her being uh, and 20 people maybe watching but you're right she had this huge resurgence she is now like a very uh, important queer icon yeah uh, she has she has really she's risen um, yeah, yeah it's wow. good that's really wild like that only like 20 people there Gee. Yeah, it was pretty rough. And actually, is another uh, uh, sad, sad point in someone's career. But Dan Levy was the host before, <laughs> long before like Schitt's Creek. Um, and so Dan Levy and Carly Rae Jepsen had this tiny little audience on Parliament Hill. Um, yeah. What a time. They've, I mean, they've both done much, much better for themselves than that. Thankfully. Wow. So thankful for the energy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's let's listen to it, and we'll uh, we'll have a little further talk about it after.
The other uh, kind of queer touchstone moment for Carly Reed Jepsen that I, I think, and this is part of maybe that, um, you know, like uh, the, the the queer ability to to lift things and, and repurpose and, and put them into different contexts or, or really like, again, academia, like queering that space in such a um, literal way. Uh, the conductor, Dan Poisner, I don't know if you know Daniel Bartholomew Poisner, he's, um, I think he's, He's a CBC radio host now, but he also does the Toronto Symphony and he does San Francisco Symphony and he does uh, Symphony Nova Scotia and a bunch of different things. But he has he also has this kind of touring thing that he does with the drag queen Thorgy Thor uh, yeah, and the right. Thorchestra. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dan and Thorgy put together this show. And so uh, they toured around different um orchestras around North America. And one of the the uh, medleys is a Carly Rae Jepsen medley that he wrote um, that uh, Thorgy, Thorgy plays on and then sings a bit. And uh, they do this weird classical music, Carly Rae Jepsen inspired medley <laughs> of songs, but it's much more literal than your piece. You're, you're obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that's, that's interesting though. Like, I mean, 
I I do know I know of that connector. Don't know them personally, and I I know of the Thorgy. Like I watched that season of Drag Race when it was on, and I know of like the Thorgy, uh, like the orchestra act. I have some friends that have gone and and seen them in different places. I think literally in in Halifax, I think, or in like one of those Halifax performances. Yeah, which is super cool. And uh, I didn't know that they did a, a Carly Rae Jepsen medley though. I think that's. I mean. It, at least where I fall kind of on like the certain kind of uh, like ideals of repurposing and stuff like that. I think it can be really interesting, but like, sorry, but I don't know if I'm like really interested in hearing like Thorgy do Tchaikovsky or something, or maybe not Tchaikovsky. Maybe that's not a good Fair. example, but you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, I don't know. Like what else does she play again? Cause she does like a lot of really classical stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think in the set, I mean, I've only seen the, the Halifax show and it was like now three years ago, but um, I think she did like a Chike and... Uh, I, I was Tchaikovsky, yeah. Yeah, and she there was something else that there was a solo something, maybe it was a... Um, Maybe it's part of the Berkofiev cello or something. Okay. Um, like to be fair, like a very skilled uh, yeah. string player. And I remember talking to Dan before the first set of shows, and we were um, like, Dan was just so excited to be like doing this show because it's neat and great. But until until dress rehearsal was the first one, he had never heard Thirty play. So like he kept getting these like, oh yeah, we'll do this rep, we'll do this. This is fine. I can do this. This is fine. We'll throw that in. Da, da, da. But it's nerve wracking to have some uh, like famous drag queen who says they play violin um, <laughs> before you actually hear them. But yeah. she's actually like quite good, and she's a good cellist and a good violinist. But um, anyway, digressions. Carly Rae Jepsen digressions. That's actually really cool, though. I mean, like one other really quick thing I'll say. Like I actually, now that you brought it up and said it like that, like even though I'm I'm still more interested in things that more like I guess radically repurpose something, or more rather than just say like placing not that I don't think there's validity to it and everybody to each their own and stuff like that but I'm definitely interested in stuff that personally more radically um changes things or radically reinvents or recreates or just newly creates rather than simply placing one thing into another space especially like a queer space but like hearing that actually makes me kind of more partial to it because one like big qualm that I have with the classical world is that and I, I understand why it is the way it is, but one big qualm I have about it is that everything is focused on the skill of like the player, mm-hmm. like every, which is obviously a huge thing and you have to be skilled, don't get me wrong, but it's such a skill-based field to the point where all these other elements that go into like your artistry fall by the wayside. You know, it's like people don't really care about like album covers, but they're like, oh, but the music they're playing on it is so, they're such good players. Like that's always the thing that people say, oh, you gotta go see this person play Beethoven because they're such good players. Like, what if I don't really like Beethoven? Like, what if I don't like that music personally? Like now I have to listen to that music just because that person is a skilled player. It seems kind of like, kind of strange to me, especially not coming from the classical world originally. So I actually kind of appreciate that anecdote because Thorgy is placed into this this space and doing that not because everybody's like, well, she's such a good violinist, she has to do it. It's because of her artistry and persona and the aesthetic and and who she is as a as an artist and a character and or not even character, but you know, as an entity rather than just like, oh, well, they're really good at playing their instrument. So I don't know, I don't know how you feel about that, but I no, I, I, I think that, that that puts a fine point on it. I mean, it's interesting that. 
um Flirty is just incidentally a good violinist or a good yeah. it's like it's it's uh really and when you watch when you watch the the show probably only I'm gonna say 25-30% is Thorgy actually playing. The rest of it's a drag show. Like the rest of it is purely it's a audience interaction, it's uh stupid sexualization of Dan the, the conductor. Like it's it's a lot of uh they drag people up from the audience and and get them to catwalk and it's it's pure pure drag, but it's just that she happens to play quite well. And so they throw yeah. in some orchestra stuff on on the side. Um Great. yeah. Cool. So yeah, so you had, you had another question about Carly. You want to get back to Carly Rae Jepsen, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think I'm, I think that's my that's the extent of my my Carly Carly uh, Rae Jepsen info. But um, yeah, so uh, you grew up in Newfoundland. You grew up in in Labrador, um, and you say Labrador West is specifically where you grew up, right? Yeah, because. Labrador, um, Labrador West is basically consistent of Labrador City, Wabush. It's like these two mm. twin towns. So like some people say they're from Labrador City. Some people say they're from Wabush. Really, the two towns are kind of one. They go to the same school. They have the same tiny jet airport. They're, they're kind of amalgamated in a kind of way. So sometimes I say Labrador West. or And also, I, I kind of hate saying Labrador City because everybody thinks it's a city, but it's literally called the town of Labrador City. That's the the official full name, which is hilarious, actually. Because what's the population? What? Uh... It's like ten or twelve thousand or something. It's like, right. and there's nothing. The next closest thing is Baycomo, Quebec, seven eight hours away, or Happy Valley Goose Bay, seven eight hours away, the other direction. So right. it's super isolated, and not as isolated as the coastal Labrador communities for sure, right. but it's still isolated in the grand scheme of things. So how was, uh, so when, okay, maybe first question, when did you move uh, south down to St. John's? Because you did your undergrad in St. John's, right? St. John's, yeah, yeah. I moved for the under, for the undergrad, essentially. Right. In a lot of ways, um, one very positive thing that's come out of going to school or academia is that almost every degree that I've went to, not that I haven't like learned something necessarily, but they've all been a means to escape somewhere. They've mm. all like, like without without some sort of umbrella or community or means to leave Labrador City, it feels very hard and very strange to leave there. Right. It's it's um, and I mean I like not that, that like I was heavily integrated into uh like a queer community there, and I should I should give full disclosure too. Like coming to like queer communities and the queer community and identifying as queer is actually something that's quite late in my life. I should say you don't know me very well, so I should probably mention that. It's something that that's that I've come to a lot uh, much later, and I'm still kind of actually figuring out kind of as as time goes along. Like I identify it, and I'll proudly identify it as, and I'll, I'll do that. But uh, I sometimes wonder how much. Like I know that it's not just one trajectory, but I sometimes wonder how much to kind of input in the conversation, or how much space to take up, or how much I I should be on the pedestal because of coming to like the, those communities later and stuff. I mean, part of it is probably the place where I grew up, but I know I knew some queer people growing up in, in Labrador City who really, like, I felt very isolated and very kind of, like, like uh, very claustrophobic all the time. And I can imagine that those people felt even, like, even, like, I knew some non-binary people growing up there before I even knew that, that term, who now live in Toronto and are, like, 
like very odd, uh, like very obviously much more happier and kind of like thriving people than what they're like there. But anyway, so coming back to it, um, that the idea of like this escape, like basically like St. John's was, St. John's was a way to kind of, or Memorial was a way to kind of move on and, and get out kind of thing because a lot of like, I don't like look down on people that follow this trajectory in life at all. I, maybe I did when I was younger and less mature, but Labrador city is kind of, it's a mining town where everything exists because of the mine, because mm -hmm. of the iron ore mine. So even if you work in like a service or something, you're basically subservient to the mine. Like everybody who lives there works at the mine. Most people grow up, their families work at the mines or work in some sort of service of the town, like the hospital or the schools or restaurants. And then um, when they graduate, they basically go to work for the mine or they go do a degree somewhere else that is involved in that and they come back and, and teach there or whatever right. in the schools or something. So it's, it's like, I only know a handful, like probably less than five or 10 people that I grew up with who I still keep in contact with who like did, did not stay there, like things like that. You know, like most people kind of stay there. It's like a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. um so anyway it was kind of like a, a an escape in that way and new york was also kind of like that too because it's like how else am i going to go to the states and go to new york city where i wanted to work with a bunch of different people without doing a degree it's a legal way to do it so mm -hmm. so yeah i don't know if it sorry that was where you're going but it reminded me of it for a minute so well i mean anywhere anywhere we go is where we go but it it right. um it's uh, it's it's funny as we talk, we talk to more people through the the because there's there's two entities to this classical queer thing. There's the the podcast, and then there's the blog. Mm -hmm. So at this point, oh, and there's also a the database of Canadian specific musicians. But at this point, I mean, I've had conversations with like upwards of 150 people at this point, uh, queer musicians around the world, um, largely Canadian based, but like around the world. And this idea of uh, like when you come to it or when you um, when you begin identifying as queer or where, or like what locale made that um, more present for you or like what, what event or whatever. It's, it's interesting to talk to people who, um, I mean, later in life, I don't think you're that old. I don't think you're that much older than I am, but like, so later in life is kind of a, a funny term, but like, I, I think people who um, start to identify as queer later than maybe adolescence, because uh, we've, we've talked to a number of people on the podcast. It's interesting to have that um, retrospective is not the right word, but like look backwards pre being queer and understanding and kind of um, placing a lot of uh, understanding on what you were doing or why you were doing it. Maybe you, and I'm not trying to prescribe anything to like your, your life or anything, but like, you know, that need to leave Labrador, you know, move down to, to St. John's. You weren't queer at that point. You weren't identifying as queer at that point. Um, but there was obviously something that was drawing you somewhere else. Like you say, that escape, that, uh, that movement towards something uh, new and different. And uh, again, for the people who don't know St. John's, St. John's is uh, still a very small city. St. John's is probably only, what, 50, 60,000 people. Maybe no, I don't even think it's that big. I think it, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, depending on what you consider surrounding communities or everything. I think it does get somewhere around the hundred, the hundreds range. And I mean, it also depends on whether you're considering like what part of the year when students are in boxing. Yeah, of course, of course. But but I think if you if you count 
depending on if you count places like CBS and Torbay, things that aren't very far away, like things that are just, or paradise, things that are just mm-hmm. past, you can get somewhere around the hundred thousand. I mean, all those people live in those communities going in and out of St. John's to. Yeah, work. absolutely. But yeah, it's still very small though. And it's the only thing remotely close to that population in across the island. Oh yeah. Because Corner Brook is like the next biggest thing. And that's only like, 30, 40,000 or something. I believe I can't remember. Right. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Well, and just to, so then, you know, you were in, you were in St. John's and then there was obviously something that was drawing you to New York and, and probably I'm going to guess a lot of that is musically and academically, but also there's, um, there's a need for community always. We, everybody we talk to uh, and any queer person who's not even a musician you would ever talk to is always searching for community. That's, that's such an important um yeah part of our understanding of of being queer and again no matter where where you come to it in life um community is such an important facet of that the thing so it's just interesting to talk to somebody who grew up so so rural who has uh like searched for that and whether or not it was like conscious or whether or not it was musical whether it was queer focused or Mm -hmm. whatever you're searching which is such a an interesting um interesting thing i think there have been people who we've talked to uh, i'm specifically thinking of uh, sininva who is uh, from sweden who uh grew up in a like a really queer focused household anyway uh in kind of rural sweden fairly north sweden um and ended up moving to uh, boston i suppose where's new England conservatory boston um ended up moving to boston and uh, it, the, the need, the drive for like big queer community was not as strong because Sinidva had like a wonderful music community and a wonderful queer community back home in rural Sweden. And so has moved back to rural Sweden because that uh, push towards something uh, was actually the push home, was actually the push rural. Um, but I think that's uh, kind of a, uh, not backward experience, but like an uh, uncommon experience for many, yeah. many people. Is very unique for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do I can I can kind of relate to what you said about the kind of retro not retrospectively but like the looking back and kind of like thinking back to those kinds of things and and um, I don't even know if I want to say like quote unquote like signs or like you know like hints or anything because I don't even think they're necessarily like that because they're kind of like always there to an extent. But when yeah when I started when I started identifying or like using the term uh, queer or like identifying as that um, it did like, it did start like a lot of things made sense. Like a lot of like that one of the, one of those things you mentioned about the community that made like total sense. Um, I can't, I'm, I'm now I'm blanking because I'm talking out loud and stuff, but you know, just like, I just thought back to so many things it's like, Oh yeah. Like this makes so much sense when I connect it to that, that term. Like maybe I didn't face the same kind of trajectory because I because I'm still somewhere kind of on the on the bi pan spectrum somewhere that I'm still figuring out and maybe I didn't face the same kind of trajectory of somebody who is much more leaning on the completely homosexual side or anything like that uh, and I know people that went through that trajectory that I'm very close with and it's so it's like a different narrative or it's like a different kind of experience but it but like a lot of things line up or a lot of like embracing certain parts of your identity totally, totally line up. It's it's really interesting. I mean, that's that's one of the things I appreciate the most about like using the term and is the the kind of embracing, even though sometimes I I I do feel like kind of like a like I, I try to like 
not be an imposter or something like that. Like, even though sometimes I have that kind of weird thing in the back of my mind, but that's also probably mostly just there because like I lived so much growing up being treated like an imposter in other situations. So it's probably actually a artifact of that rather than actually a reflection of what it's like being a part of the queer community. Mm -hmm. But like, like um, even though like sometimes I do that, think about that, like the fluidity or the kind of wider umbrella that exists in it or the kind of no one story, but connecting to various like intersectionalities, like, like I immediately identified with that, like in so many ways. And I think like so many people can in different ways. And that's something I really always appreciate about it. So, yeah. So uh, let's listen to another piece. So uh, let's look at, look at uh, traps, taboos and tradition. So this is a spatialized guitar quartet. So what was this written for? Mm -hmm. So it was written for uh, uh, Tim Brady's group, Instruments of Happiness in Montreal. So uh, do you know Tim Tim Brady? Do you know him? No, I also don't know Tim. No, so so Tim's like uh, Tim's uh, almost Montreal based his entire life. Uh, he's get, he's in the older kind of ranges now, but he's he's basically been this kind of champion for electric guitar and contemporary music since the eighties, since he like really started. So he's like along with some people like say Steve Mackey mm. or like. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of other names, a lot of 80s people like Elliot Sharp and people like that. Like there's a, a number of people in the 70s and 80s, Glenn Branca, who really started integrating the electric guitar into contemporary music and carving out kind of its space. Him and, and Steve Mackey are two very much like composer electric guitarists, just on the opposite side of the border. And um, he's been doing it since like the 80s. So like he's puts a big focus on being a performer composer, uh, he has an electric guitar quartet. He runs these like hundred guitar spatialized projects that play in like shopping malls and things like that, that are open uh, difficulty wise. So there's like everywhere from like beginner kids, people who've never played to like experts all playing together. Um, and he's, he's done all sorts of stuff like chamber music, electric guitar, handful of concertos. So he's kind of like a, a kind of like, um, uh, kind of like a mentor of some of some sorts either directly or indirectly at this point and uh back in 2019 or 2018 or so he reached out because he said like i want to do this spatialized electric guitar quartet concert in this church in montreal Le Jesus, and um, commissioned myself andrew staniland louise campbell and rose bolton uh to do pieces and it was a cool concert because it was all 14 minute long pieces exactly hmm. all run back to back and they're all kind of ordered so that they actually work as one concert experience rather than separate pieces. But I think cool. the pieces still stand alone. Um, yeah, and it's all stopwatch-based music. It's all, um, and I think the audience was in the middle with a dance group in the middle of them and the guitars were surrounding them. This was, by the way, the last concert I was at before everything shut down. It was like mm. February in the 10s or something, February 12 mm. or 18 mm -hmm. or something like that, and, or 20th or something. And then it's like less than a month later, everything shut down. So I was still very thankful that I was able to be kind of a part of that. And now the studio release of the album just came out last month. So in April, the album oh, great. on Redshift. So, so yes, yeah, so the piece was written for them. Facialized Electric Guitar Quartet. Um, the only thing I could say is interesting that probably wouldn't I would mention before listening to it is that the piece was interesting for me because a lot of my music, as you could tell from the last one, deals with like off and onset of attacks or like deals with kind of rhythmic ideas 
uh, and like interacting the rhythmic ideas or like jagged rhythmic ideas, even more specifically. And this was kind of interesting thing is like, how do I get that articulation and that attack and that kind of interaction in a space? Because the really easy thing to do would be to create a drony piece, right? But I was like, I don't know if I want to create a drony piece. I want to retain that sense of motion. So I don't know. It was interesting. It was fun to write. <laughs> well, let's have a listen. Thank you. 
So uh, the first thing, I mean, when you say you you write from um, like a rhythmic or uh, an attack standpoint, uh, I've had the pleasure of playing one of your pieces once. Um, we, uh, and I'm going to absolutely blank on the name of it, but it was, I think, six movements. Um, yeah. Activity cycles, yeah. Activity cycles, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we played it with uh, the, the group I played with Alkali. And it was incredibly rhythmic. And I think, if I remember when we were chatting about it, this was an early piece for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, how long ago it would have been, but it was uh, early early in your career. And um, but still still holds true. I mean, it was a very um, angular, rhythmic. Uh, there were some really beautiful movements, but they were really uh, butting against each other. It was a lot of uh, jagged sections. Uh, which made it fun to play. Like it made it really like enjoyable to do. And it was, uh, I think it was a sextet, I think six or seven of us, maybe. I don't remember how many people I should have, I should have prepped any amount no, of knowledge okay. before they I started rambling like, about it. <laughs> to your defense though, it, it changes per movements. Each of the movements have a yes. different. So, I mean, it is fair to like, be like how many are there? I mean, I'm even thinking myself is like the, the first and last movements would have everybody. How many instruments? I think it's six. I think it's six players on it. I think but, it's six. Yeah, there was percussion, cello, clarinets, flute, piano, violin. I think that's yeah. I think that's what it was. Um, but it would it was a lot of fun to play. And I think I I it's always interesting to I get this uh neat perspective sometimes uh where I've either conducted somebody's pieces or uh played somebody's pieces as a clarinetist. I uh, I always preface though that I am like not an active clarinetist. I am like much more a conductor than I am a clarinetist. And so I very oh, rarely play gosh. someone's pieces as a clarinetist. Um, I am a, I'm a clar- clarinetist by, um, by necessity sometimes. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I get to play someone's pieces on, on an instrument rather than conducting them. And then it's always interesting to play them, have that experience of like dissecting it as a performer and then listening to it on either the podcast or as a conductor or something, or even as an audience member and getting to kind of connect those dots is really interesting. So like, as I'm listening to these pieces today, it's uh, interesting to hear activity cycles in my head because it's the last thing that um, I had uh, encountered of yours, obviously before uh, this, so that, that last one there are like there are threads I can I can hear and see yeah. you there. yeah cool I appreciate that yeah I, I there's only a handful of pieces from around that time that I still think even though they're different like they're they're representative and I think it's because of because of those threads there's basically mm-hmm. that piece there's a there's an eight song cycle that still gets played fairly often uh, and then I also have this weird like synthesizer concerto from around that time. These mm-hmm. are all like pieces I wrote either right near the end of my undergrad or right after I graduated from the undergrad. So they're kind of like between undergrad and, and masters. And even mm-hmm. though I, there are a lot of choices that are a lot of things that happen in those pieces, I would not make the same decisions today. I mean, I think that's also the nature of it. I mean, I'm going to say the same thing about these pieces in five years or something. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah. But, but I like the fact that Stanline has actually said that before. Stanley was my first teacher at Memorial, one of my first teachers at Memorial with Clark Ross. And, uh, and Stanline has said that a lot whenever he hears new pieces. He says, oh, I can hear like those threads or, or I hear some of the same kind of like ideas, but now they're like different or in a new place, which I think I appreciate. So, yeah. I also think there's a, an element of you can hear what 
later will be like completely unspun or unraveled, but like just is the very beginnings of like a, a concept or an idea that you just kind of like test so lightly and in some piece by somebody, you know, someone writes something and then you can watch their career and like, Oh, over the next five years, they really took that and really like fully expanded on that, that concept, which is just such a deep, uh, a neat thing to watch happen. And I think that's one of the joys of being a conductor is you get to like, see somebody's career unfold like that and you get to play things over multiple years and and watch them work through those those processes but that's neither here nor there but it's funny to bring up Andrew Stanlin I uh, I love his music I I remember I don't remember where I would have met him first I think I did a symposium years and years and years and years ago might have been in Newfoundland I don't even remember where I was but um I remember meeting him and just uh like loving his loving his work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such a, a a great first mentor, I think, would be uh, a good way to put that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's been a pretty unwavering support over the years, even though it's been forever since since I've technically or quote unquote studied under him. And it's it's really neat to. Uh, I mean, he mentioned this after the concert in Montreal back in twenty uh, back in twenty twenty, but it's it's um it's really cool to like like work with somebody like as like a mentor still consider them a mentor like years on and this because i think like a lot in a lot of ways a lot of people like that always consider their teachers to be some sort of mentor even if they end up becoming more friends like down the road or colleagues along the road they're still like a mentor kind of capacity at some point but i remember him even saying this after that concert that it was so cool like years later i mean i guess it'd been six years since i graduated from memorial to now have like a uh, like just be commissioned alongside of each other on a uh, mm. on a on a concert. Um, Tim did a podcast and mentioned this in uh, in the other podcast. Like the big reason why he picked everybody on this project, if you end up checking out the record or anybody who listens and ends up checking the record, is that everybody on the project not only has like a tie to like a different province, but also has like a different kind of relationship with the electric guitar or being a performer or a composer because like. Stanlan is also a guitarist, but not an active performer. Like he's very much in the composer trajectory, whereas I'm kind of like parallel the two all the time, back and forth, right? And the other two composers on it, I think one had minimal experience writing for guitar and then another uh, had never written for a guitar before. So yeah. there's kind of all sorts of different, but like all everybody very accomplished composers. So it's, it's an interesting project for that reason, so. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, and then the last one we're, we have to listen to is uh, Round Trips, which is solo violin with fixed media. Um, and so uh, tell us uh, tell us about this one. Who's playing uh, concept, all the things? Yeah, yeah. So this this piece is, is my partner, Yaz Lancaster, playing it. And it's written for them. Very personal, personal piece for them. Not that not that nobody else could, could play it necessarily or anything, but... Uh, is very much written for Yaz with Yaz in mind. Uh, the vocal samples in it are both Yaz's poetry that they that they wrote for me after uh, I think our even our first year anniversary or something like that of being together. We're engaged now. We've been together. I think it'll be four years in August. And um, the uh, yeah, so they like uh, they wrote me a piece actually before we ended up uh, before we ended up dating. They wrote me a solo electric guitar piece. And uh, I've played that piece so many times now. And it's like, 
I mean, I play a lot of the pieces that people write for me a lot because one of my big kind of mantras, like as a performer, is not the one and done premiere. Mm. Uh, so, like, I like growing with a piece and like kind of like developing a piece over time before it kind of gets a somewhat of a fully formed kind of idea. Uh, even if the score is finished. So, um, which I think most performers actually do, actually do. But anyway, that piece that Yaz had written for me, um, Meditations on Oxen years ago, for solo electric guitar and, and voice, is this is kind of almost, um, I don't know if it's a response to it, but it's definitely like like kind of my, my version of that kind of now coming back. So Yaz had written Meditations on Oxen for me, played it a whole lot. It includes Yaz's poetry, it includes me doing spoken and sung and uh, like yelled words while playing guitar in it. Uh, and then after a year or so of us being together and me doing that, I was saying like, I want to write Yaz a solo violin piece. So this was the solo violin piece that came out of it. And rather than Yaz doing a lot of the vocalizations, the vocalizations are all in the electronics. They're all sampled from Yaz's poetry. They're a little bit more like, um, sometimes you can hear stuff, but they're a little bit more kind of obscured and kind of manipulated or, or affected in different ways. Um, and a lot of the violin techniques are, um, are also in, similarly to how Meditations on Oxen was written for me guitar-wise, a lot of the stuff that Yaz wrote in that piece was stuff that Yaz had heard me or like inspired by like Yaz hearing me play a lot of these things, like mm -hmm. certain kinds of chords, certain kinds of voices, certain kinds of articulations and effects and sounds and things like that. Uh, certain techniques from like the band that I play in, but also some guitar stuff. And then this was a similar thing when I wrote it for Yaz is I was doing the bulk of the writing of it. Uh, actually kind of around the middle time of like the beginning of the pandemic and stuff. That was when the really like the sit down bulk writing of it was done. And at the time, Yaz was actually stuck with me in London uh, for two and a half months or something. They came down for March break. They literally came down the Saturday and everything Monday shut down. That was just, they were supposed to come for a week for mm -hmm. March break. I know, right? It, was, it felt very apocalyptic. It was, like, yeah. I was, it was very strange. I was supposed to like think, there was like rumblings of things shutting down, but people, I remember getting the email from like Western saying like, we're shutting down from the time being. It was like a Friday. I was supposed to go to like a show at like London Music Hall that night. I remember like dropping by on my way just to see if it's actually still happening and seeing the poster. It's like it, the sky was very dark in my mind. Like it was yeah. like, and then the next morning, Yaz flew in, and on Monday everything was shut, and then everything kind of changed in a sense. But um, Yaz didn't end up being able to go back to New York and cross the border and go back until I think the end of May or something so they were here for like two and a half months and practicing a lot in my room I, I was living at that time in a very small bachelor's studio apartment like very very small probably like the size of this like living room of sorts mm -hmm. so like I just remember hearing Yaz practice a lot of the techniques in this a lot they're playing music by like Anne Lanzalotti or mm -hmm. you know Anne Lanzalotti and like uh, a bunch of other kinds of pieces and different things so a lot of the violin techniques or the violin ideas in it are in, are similarly inspired by stuff that I hear Yaz playing a lot. So yeah, it's uh again this this funny uh, set of uh, connections and things that that this uh, project research thing has kind of uh, brought about. Like I've also played a few of Yaz's pieces over the years, and um, we played uh, India because India was our 
guest last podcast and played Yaz's piece off India's new album on the last podcast. And so we have this wonderful full circle of uh, Yaz Lancaster music being brought back in again. Yeah, Um, yeah. They're ubiquitous. They're always, they're omnipresent. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, let's, uh, let's have a listen. Thank you. 
We we come to come to an end. We we've uh, listened to, to three wonderful pieces, um, and we've we've had a, I think a great tour of your, uh, like experience and, and your your kind of uh, ethos around composing and and life. And we kind of end always with uh, where can people find you? Where can people hear your stuff? Where uh, can they buy your music? All that kind of good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Um... Uh, I think the all I think almost all of my handles on stuff are A N, so like my initials and then music composer. So like that's my website and musiccomposer.com. It's the handles on the social media. You can find me on just about any social media for the most part. Mostly active on Instagram, to be honest, but but I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and things. And then that's also the Bandcamp address where I have a lot of my stuff compiled. Anything that's worth, I think, kind of selling in that kind of way is on the band camp um and all the other usual streaming services but when i decided to make like a handle that was across everything i was like okay i'll do my initials and then i'll do music composer because who knows what composer could be and mm-hmm. now i really like i'm now i probably choose something else or or whatever because i'm i don't know if i always say i'm a composer and stuff but i decided to keep it because everybody thinks i've like grammatically and incorrectly spelled a music composer, which I think is <laughs> hilarious. And I say this all the time. It's like, it's my initials, A. So they're like, I'm music composer. Like, that's wrong. That's not how you would say that. I'm like, like, do you really think that if I was going to create an email, I would, I would, I would call myself a music composer in my email? Do you think, like, do you think that's a really creative, like, even if it was, that was what I was doing. Do you think that's like a, you know, like, so I, I think it's hilarious. And so now I'm like, nobody ever forgets it because everybody always remembers it as this weird, quirky grammatically incorrect way of saying a music composer as if i was the only one or something it's like like, right right or a one or something i don't know very funny strange but that's it so a n music composer and music composer yeah Um, wonderful well (laughs) 
thank you very, very much uh, for, for being, being with us today. And, and I really sincerely hope people go listen to your music and uh, seek you out more and hire you and all that kind of good stuff. That's, that's uh, the other reason for these is for promotion that there's right. a, a, a need for more uh, career composers to be present and around and, and build connections. And if we can have uh, some new commission go towards uh, you, but anybody else who's on the podcast, any new performance, if someone can listen to this and hire you to come speak or come do something, that job done. That's that's the the other part of this. So I oh, hope I you all do. It. Thanks. Cool. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.